What's good, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Get the Hoops podcast. It's your host with the most. My name is Gifted, and we're back for another episode. This week, we're diving into the 2023 season in review. I'm joined here today by nobody. It's actually just me, and I wanted to focus this episode on the 23 season, primarily because we're in the offseason, so there's a lot of time where there is no basketball. So reviewing the product we just saw for an entire season and highlighting the good and the bad, I think will be a great part for me to start. And also in the future, I'm going to be doing focus podcasts where we sit down each pod and take a look at two teams to evaluate how their season was. So I think doing a general overview before we get to those pods would be a good idea. Before we get started with this episode, make sure to tap into the video version of this podcast on YouTube at Gifted Hoops. We are, I'm pretty sure, eight subscribers away from a thousand, which is crazy because I've been grinding for a very long time and we're finally starting to see some traction. So I appreciate that. And also tap into the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you find your podcast content. Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. So for me, I think it would be a great idea to go through a checklist of things. I have a couple things written down here that I really wanted to discuss. I haven't really had time to sit down with and express. So number one, I want to start out with the biggest thing from this season for me, and that would be the MVP race. I highlighted the MVP race this year because I think this should be a precedent for what happens in the future. And not in terms of the result, but in terms of us remembering the pain of going away from basketball. And I say this because Joel Embiid had a phenomenal year, right? In a vacuum, his season this year was absolutely an MVP season compared to other MVP seasons. It was absolutely worthy of winning MVP. But what I hate about the race is the inconsistency that continues to exist year to year with the award. And to be fair, the inconsistencies have been there for quite some time with the MVP. But this year, the way Nikola Jokic was talked about was very damning to me because oftentimes the people going against Jokic for the MVP, instead of referencing basketball points, it was non-basketball related. And it starts for me before the season, actually. Because before the season, what the narrative was on Denver is Jokic has not had playoff success. Even though they made a conference finals, even though the past two years, the biggest players on the Nuggets outside of Jokic and Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. have been compromised for two individual seasons. That didn't matter to these people. So the narrative was Jokic is not a playoff performer or hasn't had the playoff success. So because of that, he should be taxed for this upcoming season and not win a third straight MVP unless they have playoff success. So they were literally pigeonholing Jokic into a corner before the season started. The season starts, Stephen Curry, Jason Tatum, Jokic, like, these type of players are the leaders of the MVP. The Sixers start off their year kind of tough, right? But then Jokic starts to take over the league as like the clear MVP there, the number one seed in the West. He's having a productive season. 
70% true shooting on less attempts. He was very, very good. And he's also averaging like a triple-double at this point in the season. But then, Kendrick Perkins on ESPN comes out and says that Jokic is going to win the MVP or is involved in MVP talks because of his race, because he's white. And what I hate the most about that conversation around Jokic is obviously as a black man, I take this a little further because it's it's so far away from basketball. Like a lot of the agendas around the MVP race this year were really coming down to who you stand more as a player instead of objectively what these players have accomplished and who has been leading the MVP race for more or longer for the season. And what happened at the end ultimately is Denver let go of their foot on the gas. They lost like four games straight during their last two months of basketball, I'm pretty sure. They fumbled against teams that were clearly inferior to them. And while this was happening, Joel Embiid was winning a lot of games. And in the head-to-head matchup, he dominated Jokic and the Nuggets, and they were able to win that game. And that was enough for people to say, see, Jokic does not deserve the MVP. Joel Embiid is clearly the MVP. That was the consensus between a lot of people, as if the first four months of basketball for Nikola Jokic did not matter. So I really found that weird, especially when Jokic was more durable, played more games up to that point. It just fell off. But the worst part about the MVP race that I really hate is when Jokic, after the regular season ends, has an all-time playoff run and wins the championship and cements his legacy as a player, what people now say is, wow, you know what? I had it wrong. Jokic was the MVP. And I hate that. I hate that so, so much because ultimately, you should not be using the playoffs as a barometer for who an MVP is or not. That should not be what it is because the MVP, as we all know, is a regular season award. It doesn't combine the playoffs. It's not a playoff only award. It is a regular season only award. So the MVP in theory should be something that we measure in a vacuum within the context of the specific regular season. So the fact that Jokic had to come out here and have this dominating playoff run to dispel these narratives about him just to win another MVP is nasty. And I feel bad for Joel Embiid in a way because his playoffs were far from the production he put up during the regular season. And I understand a lot of people are going to respond and say, oh, well, he was hurt. And I get that. But before he was hurt, he still was not having a dominant series versus the Brooklyn Nets. So I can't I can't really buy Joel Embiid that much bail. But the bigger point of why I might feel bad for him is what people are going to do is they're going to see the playoff run Jokic has. And especially if he continues to play like this well into his prime and continues to have playoff success while Joel Embiid does not. What they're going to do is they're going to look at this season and they're going to say Joel Embiid won a sympathy MVP. 
Joel Embiid won a pity MVP. That's going to be the narrative on Joel Embiid until he wins a championship. And I feel bad because now people are probably going to care less about what Joel Embiid accomplishes in the regular season because of his lack of playoff success. And that shouldn't be the narrative. It should be Joel Embiid had a great regular season. He just was not the MVP. Now the pressure of winning and all of these other things are going to be on Joel Embiid a lot more, which I think it should be to that standard, of course. But I just don't think this entire situation should have existed in the first place. So for me, the MVP race this year has really taught me that recency bias is going to be at an all-time high, especially at the end of the regular season. But I'm also hoping that this race can teach the media world a lesson about maybe just leaving basketball as basketball and not hopping into things like race xenophobia or playoff success which has nothing to do with what an mvp truly is but realistically these voters i mean that criteria for them really might not ever change because it's extremely subjective there's not really a line for objectivity for some of these voters but that's my take on the mvp race that was a huge thing that i got from this season but the number two thing and i gotta highlight this man Oklahoma City, I got to give them a lot of credit this year. Um, they're a team that did not make the playoffs this year. So on paper, it's like, why am I highlighting them? But this team went from a team that would have no Chet to start the season. And a lot of people had them as like the bottom of the bottom in the West, even with Houston in the conference. They had them being that terrible. And they just outperformed expectations and almost made the playoffs. They were one game away from being a playoff seed in a year where Shea Gilgis Alexander improved again and put together a all NBA performance. And Shea was spectacular this year. Like he, he continues to impress with the level of athlete he is in terms of the way he pressures the basket and creates opportunities for his team. But let's not get fooled. This OKC success was not just a product of Shea being that good of a basketball player, even though he was great and obviously he led that team. But it was also a part of the team as a whole playing hard every night, making defense be the core identity for that team. And by the way, this is a team that pretty much has no veteran players on the roster. And they're led by a great coach in Mark D. I'm scared to say his last name because I don't want to get it wrong. But Coach Mark literally had this Oklahoma City team brought in on both ends of the basketball court, pushing the pace. And specifically, they had no real front court depth at the center position. And they still found a way to compete and be a top 10 defense in the league so for me i gotta give that a lot of credit and i just think oklahoma city is a great story because remember like five five years ago now i think the paul george trade where they gave oklahoma city all of these picks in the moment it was a bigger splash for the clippers because they got paul george and Kawhi for the deal and 
I hear a lot of people saying that like they're not sure if they will still do that deal. I'm not going to have recency bias based on how things have gone. But in the moment, turning down Kawhi Leonard and Paul George just doesn't make much functioning sense, especially after seeing Kawhi just win the championship for the Toronto Raptors. So I'm not going to go that far, but I understand people's point in the fact that they gave up all their assets. And this OKC team, while I do like the moves they've made, I think they do have a dilemma on their hands because they're a younger team with Shea, who I believe is 24 years of age. In my opinion, they're not going to use all of these draft picks to be players that they build with. In my opinion, you're going to have to break up some of these assets to make the team better by trading for another player to put on this OKC team once they get closer to winning. And it feels weird because it feels like the map for them is to just continue developing with Shea as your best player and further developing players like Chet, players like Josh Giddy, players like J-Dub, who was a great rookie player for his first year. But the issue with that is, with the new CBA in place, it's going to be hard to keep all of this talent together and under contract. Right now, OKC doesn't have to worry about that as much. But in the coming years, like two, three, four years, especially after Shea becomes super max worthy and can sign that contract extension, there's going to be questions this OKC team has to ask in terms of, do we still go with the young route or do we make a splash move with some of these assets that we built from the ground up and really go for a championship run and obviously i'm not trying to do this weird thing where you evaluate okc and you instantly try to like pigeonhole them into a productive role in terms of trying to win right now i'm not trying to do that but at the same time i, I do think you have to keep it a hundred percent with the future and how good they are now and how good they can be in the future. So I do think that's a tough pickle for them to be in. But to be fair, I would rather be in that situation with a lot of picks than potentially having to question if I want to give big four-year deals to Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, who as good as they are, they are injury prone. And there's a chance that after this season, both of them leave in free agency for absolutely nothing which would then leave you out to dry considering you have none of your picks or your assets moving forward. So shout out to OKC. I think they were a great story this season. But the next thing I want to address, to me, this was the biggest story of the season. The Sacramento Kings, man. The Sacramento Kings, to me, were the biggest story in basketball and i have to say this because you might not believe me but coming into the season after the warriors my favorite team of course lost mike brown when mike brown went to sacramento i really thought sacramento could have success and my thoughts on sacramento before mike brown from last year is De'Aaron fox was figuring it out because after the Sabonis trade, Fox was putting up the best numbers of his career. He was extremely impactful. And Sabonis was also good as well. 
They didn't wind up making the playoffs, but they were competitive. And I felt that coming in with Keegan Murray as their draft pick, with Barnes as another veteran player, and with Fox taking another leap and Sabonis being that floor raiser for the team in terms of handoffs and the way that they run their offense, I thought the Kings had a good shot to be a competitive team and potentially make the playoffs. And to not have any recency bias, let's remember what these talks were, people, right? People were saying the Sacramento Kings would have a worse record than the Portland Trailblazers, another team that we'll be getting into later. But a lot of people said that. And ultimately, the Kings had a much better record. They were the number three seed in the West. And I can guarantee you, a lot of people on their bingo card did not have the Sacramento Kings as the top three seed in the West. And I'll tell you why. Because when the season started, I watched these games, y'all. When the season started, the Sacramento Kings were 0-4 to start the season. They were not a great basketball team to a lot of people. But if you watch the games that they lost, I saw structure. I saw a team that had heart. I saw a team that was producing greatly on the offensive end. I just saw some blunders with questionable calls and just bounces that didn't go their way. But I saw a different team than the one I saw for the majority of last season in those four games. And I stood on my tape that the Kings were going to be a good team. And what happened? After that, they picked up a lot of steam. They won a lot of games. Fox was the clutchest player in the league this year. He absolutely took another leap as a professional. And you have to give De'Aaron Fox a lot of credit because there were multiple games this season where people would have a narrative that DeMontis Sabonis was like clearly the best player on the team and, and Fox was essentially a Sabonis merchant meaning that like Fox could not be as productive on the basketball floor without Sabonis. But if you look into the numbers, his his efficiency and his play when Sabonis isn't on the court, that couldn't be further from the truth. He had multiple games this year where he produced at a high level, especially in the clutch, without Sabonis on the floor. Prime example, when they played the Clippers after they signed Russ in that game that I believe went three OTs, I'm pretty sure. De'Aaron Fox was handling business with Sabonis fouled out of the game alongside Malik Monk, another name that produced really well for the Kings as their sixth man, supremely efficient guy who can come in, play 16 minutes and have 20 points. Like he was that good of a player. And for this team to be the team to finally break the playoff drought, which, no exaggeration, I'm pretty sure the last time the Sacramento Kings were in the playoffs was the Bush administration. That's not a joke, I don't believe. Like, it was that long of a playoff drought, and the Kings absolutely performed expectations, especially in season. Because let's face it, after the Kings had a great start by All-Star break, a lot of people had a narrative that the Kings were going to drop. Oh, the Clippers, they're going to have a, a better record than the Kings. The Warriors are going to have a better record than the Kings. Phoenix just got Kevin Durant. They're probably going to finish with a better record than the Sacramento Kings. 
the Lakers just retooled. They're going to probably have, like, that was the conversation about the Kings being this fraudulent first half team and falling out. And what did the Kings do? The Kings continued their season, dominant, beating teams up, having the best offensive rating in the league, and they made the playoffs. And they played the Golden State Warriors in the first round, gave it a competitive seven-game series, but ultimately, they made the playoffs. And to me, like, obviously, that group wanted to go further than the first round. I get it. But ultimately, <laughs> there's steps to success. I don't mean to, like, meme Giannis here, but there are steps to success. And at least having this as a starter point for the Kings is solid. So that was my biggest story of the league this year. But since I already mentioned the Warriors, let's get into the Warriors now as my favorite team. The Golden State Warriors this year underperformed. They were not a championship caliber team during the regular season. I myself held out hope considering the fact that this season was a very odd season, which I kind of want to walk people through the beginning, middle, and end to this turbulent and shaky Warrior season. This team comes off of a championship run where Steph Curry absolutely shreds and dominates the Boston Celtics, who at that point were the best defense in the NBA. James Wiseman didn't play a single playoff minute based off of injury. And then you're thinking, okay, maybe he can develop and get time. Because James Wiseman, after being drafted, has had a very shaky start to his career based on not just fit with the team, but straight up injuries and not being able to develop and play basketball games and then get better after playing basketball games. A huge part of you being productive in the NBA is getting better from season to season based off the time that you get. And Wiseman was not afforded that opportunity. So I thought, okay, there's not much he has to do. I was hoping he could just be a 10-minute-a-night guy in the playoffs because athletically, I felt that he was a better finisher than Kevon Looney. But unfortunately, his IQ just never improved to a higher level. Sometimes he would have tunnel vision with the passing. His defense was abysmal. He was a better switch defender than a straight-up rim protector, but... In terms of playing pick-and-roll defense, he struggled tremendously. And the Warriors were just flat-out a worse team with Wiseman on the floor, which sadly has been a trend since he's been drafted. So that failed. To start the season, Golden State is under 500, I'm pretty sure, in the first 10 games. They're losing games to the Charlotte Hornets, the Detroit Pistons, and they're just not executing against teams they should be better than. And the alpha in the room is the Draymond Green-Jordan Poole situation where Draymond punches Jordan Poole in his face and then they have to play basketball. And the first night of the regular season, what does Draymond do? He has a mini documentary about the Jordan Poole punch. Just insane stuff for a team to have to deal with. And... I figured that this was going to be a tough situation, but I thought it was something that they could maybe mend or fix. I really did. And then they dropped the video 
which makes it worse. Uh, Jordan Poole doesn't rock with Draymond pretty much for the entire year. And then people try to do this thing where they say, oh, the punch is why the Warriors were bad this year. I'm not going to do that. I'm not a delusional fan. Jordan Poole simply was not as good as he was last year. And to be fair to Jordan Poole, he was placed in a tough spot where his role changed on a night-to-night basis. The injuries Golden State went through this year were kind of brutal. Klay Thompson was not great to start the season as well. But Jordan Poole was just straight up up and down. Defense was still abysmal. Very bad defense. Teams really targeted him a lot more this year. And offensively, he just had a lot of moments where he pressed and he just did too much with the basketball where he would turn the ball over and the execution from him just wasn't as consistent. Now, I'm not going to be such a downer on Poole because I think that's corny. I mean, Poole definitely had some time during this regular season where he was able to produce at a super high level for the Golden State Warriors and help us win basketball games. He absolutely did that. I'm pretty sure, in my opinion, he had the best game of his career this season, I think, versus the Heat. I forget what game it was. I don't know. But he was really, really good. But then in the playoffs, he's unplayable. It looks terrible. He looks lost out there. He looks shake, sh- sorry, shaken and confused. And he was basically unplayable for nearly two playoff rounds, especially versus the Lakers. He just looked shook. His confidence looked absolutely shot. And then Steph Curry during this season has a great season. In my opinion, you could argue it's an all-time season, but people aren't going to talk about it because Golden State didn't have success. I mean, Pretty much up until like the last five games of the season, Steph was 50-40-90 on 30 points per game. So he's following up the 2016 numbers to a T. He's stronger. He's a better defender. He might not be as quick off the bounce as he was in 2016, but he leverages that with having a stronger physical profile. And I felt like he was having a great season, but he got injured twice. So he was automatically out of the MVP run. And as far as supporting cast, I mean, Klay Thompson had a rough start to the season, but then he picked it up. Klay Thompson had his best three-point shooting season ever. But the things that you need Klay Thompson to do on a basketball court is shoot the three at a high level and play defense. For years and years and years, this Golden State team has been a team where the shot creation outside of Steph is always questionable outside of the Kevin Durant years. But what will make up for it is while Klay Thompson isn't really a shot creator, Klay Thompson would be able to shoot the three and play good enough POA defense to where he was not a liability on the basketball floor. But the fact that Klay Thompson's defense was shaky at best, where he had moments where his defense was good, but ultimately He was getting burned on that side of the floor as well. And then they have Jordan Poole coming off the bench, who also is getting burned. It made the on-ball defense untenable. And this team as a whole, man, they put teams in foul trouble so consistently in many, many, many games. And the free throw differential was like at all-time levels for the Warriors this year. So this team disappointed. They made it out of the first round. I saw one of the best game seven 
I'm going to put the team on my back performances I've ever seen in my life from Steph. So that was great to see. But they lost to the Lakers because their three-point shooting fell off of a cliff. They were not the more physical team. And they just didn't make their shots. They got a lot of open looks, but they didn't fall. And the Lakers just took it to them, got to the free throw line more. And Anthony Davis was a sensational defender in that series. Sensational defender. So for Golden State, tough season. 2024, their answer is getting Chris Paul. I'm done talking about my team, the Golden State Warriors. Let's get to another crazy moment in the NBA. The Brooklyn Nets this year. The Brooklyn Nets. I have a lot to say about this, actually. So at the start of the regular season, what we have to remember is in the offseason, Kevin Durant asked for a trade. And the Brooklyn Nets said, we're not trading you unless we get the value we want back. And they didn't trade him. And what happened is Durant said, okay, I'll just play basketball. And they play basketball. In that first 10, it looked extremely shaky. It looked bad. Steve Nash, the head coach, got fired, which he should have been fired. And moving from that situation, Kyrie Irving wanted a four-year deal. Couldn't get the framework of the deal he wanted from the Brooklyn Nets. And then to start the season, he has the off-the-court stuff where he could not play a lot of basketball games. And the team just looked bad. So then they fire Nash. They bring up another head coach. And they have a productive streak. They win like 17 straight games. 17 games where Kyrie... Is 50-40-90. And I'm pretty sure KD was also 50-40-90 in that stretch. But then Kyrie asks out. He requests a trade. And the Nets trade him to the Dallas Mavericks. And then for whatever reason, people believe that, okay, well, Kyrie and KD clearly weren't cool. KD clearly was okay with this happening. So KD's going to stay. And then weeks later, KD requests out as well. And he gets traded to the Phoenix Suns in a blockbuster trade that shakes the league. Brooklyn, a team that just had Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving. A team that, for all intents and purposes, was a foot off the line from going to the next round and maybe winning that round lost all three of their star players lost all of their draft capital for the james harden trade and they in return got ben simmons dinwiddie dfx dfs mikhail bridges cam johnson and pretty much a lot of the sun's future draft capital it was a wild move and i feel like for the brooklyn nets they're in this weird place where yes you have mikhail but ultimately you have to make up your mind on what your direction is in terms of are we competing are, are we trying to build around mikhail as our best player are we trying to trade mikhail for 
a younger star player like they're in a weird spot and i think right now for brooklyn their main concern is to just win basketball games and not be so bad so they can still have some value in the years where they have pick swaps with houston but that was absolutely crazy and then that takes us directly to the next part of the season where the dallas mavericks missed the playoffs and it's tied directly because obviously Kyrie gets traded there. But let's first talk about this, right? So Luka Doncic was a was an insane performer during this regular season. He was great. He floor raised that team a lot. He had Dwight Powell as his main big. JaVale McGee was absolutely terrible this season. And he was just carrying scraps. For a lot of the year. They trade these guys out. They get Kyrie Irving. And a lot of people say. Oh. Well Luka's been playing at this level. The entire season. So now you put Kyrie and Luka there. They're going to make the playoffs. And they're going to like you know. Be a dark horse and potentially upset. A team. And while I just noted everything about Luka. And how good Kyrie was as well this season. I was not high on the Mavericks after that trade. And I'll tell you why. It had nothing to do with the BS narratives that we hear about Kyrie being a a, a bad teammate. Or like this, this guy that's going to be a complete cancer to the locker room. It has more to do with not even what they gave up for Kyrie. It's really just what the team was as a whole. Their defense was never good this season. It wasn't before Kyrie and then they traded some of the guys who were at least fighting hard on that end and they had no real defensive center or wing to really play good enough defense so then the math became okay let's outscore these teams and for me personally when it comes down to projecting how good a team can be and especially how good a team can be in the playoffs you having your primary mode be let's outscore these teams and not having any versatility from the wing position to play defense is never the answer it's never the answer the good teams have versatility in those ways it can also go get a basket in the half court so for me coming down to the dallas mavericks and evaluating them I said they needed to trade Christian Wood for some value. Obviously, his value clearly wasn't there because they couldn't do it. And the Dallas Mavericks did not make the playoffs. Luka missed a bunch of time. Luka and Kyrie were learning how to play together. Their offense was creating a lot of great advantages. But ultimately, they just couldn't stop other teams. I mean, Charlotte beat them back-to-back games. And when I saw that, I just knew that it wasn't looking good for the Mavericks and that they would potentially not make the playoffs. But it's crazy considering how good Luka is. I just didn't think Dallas wouldn't make the playoffs. I had them as a lower seed than a lot of people. Like coming into the season, I'm pretty sure I had the Mavericks as, as like a seven seed considering the lack of improvement I saw from the team and how much better every other team in the league got. But not making the playoffs is something I just did not expect to happen. So for the Mavericks, they have a lot of things they need to figure out. 
They extended Kyrie, which is great. And obviously, as we continue through this offseason, we're going to have podcasts where we like dive down each roster. And the Mavericks are certainly one of those teams I want to focus a lot of time on. Certainly. But let's transition to the next thing here. The Lakers. That's right. The Los Angeles Lakers with their crazy turnaround this season. I got to give the Lakers a lot of credit. Because how things started, things were bad. I think the Lakers won maybe two of their first 10 games. Like, the energy in the locker room was horrible. The way the media and fans were treating Westbrook was terrible. But also, Westbrook wasn't doing anyone much favors with his play and fit on that team. Especially a team that didn't really add any capable spacers. So Russ looked really bad. And then it was just really bad. I'm sorry. Like how LeBron began the season was also terrible as well. But then the Lakers find a way to regroup. They they trade Russ and, and people have to get this narrative out of their mind. The Lakers did not get better because they traded Russ. The Lakers got better because of what they got to revamp that entire team. This wasn't a one-for-one one thing where they just sat Russ and became this infinitely better team. They got a bunch of valuable players who changed entire rotations around LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and that made them a better team. It did. Like, their defense, I'm pretty sure, was number one after the trade deadline, and they played hard. And this is a team that survived injuries from LeBron James and Anthony Davis and still made the playoffs. And then not only that, they make it through the first two rounds. They beat Golden State, which in my opinion, I feel like Golden State could have beat them. I, I still believe that that was still in the cards. But the Lakers absolutely bullied them and played great basketball and beat them. So salute to the Lakers for doing that. But then... After that, they go to a conference finals. If you told me in the first 10 games of the Lakers season that they were going to the conference finals, I would have laughed at you because that's that's how bad things looked. So to go from that to the conference finals, even though you did get swept and that wasn't fun, you still made it further than a lot of people had them going. And for their future, at least running it back, there's a reason why a lot of people believe in this team as a championship contender. So I get it. I do get it. But big shout out to the Lakers for turning their season around. Because the turnaround is is insane to go from 2-10 and 10 to a spot in the conference finals with a chance to go to the NBA finals. So big salute to them. And also, obviously, you got to shout out LeBron James. I mean, he broke the all-time scoring record. It's insane to see an athlete like that just be so durable and consistent for so many years and still be playing at a high level this old into his career. So big shout out to LeBron. But that takes us directly to you know who. The Denver Nuggets, man. The Denver Nuggets really deserve to be featured and highlighted tremendously on this podcast because... Again, the narrative surrounding the team, a lot of people said coming into the season and even during the season, Jokic will never win a championship as a number one option. 
Those were the narratives. Jokic will never win a championship as a number one option on a team because of his defense. It's just going to be untenable. There's no scenario where he'll be able to win. A lot of people have firmly believed that. I didn't, even though I did feel like his defense was a problem. I did feel like I could see a situation where he wins. And Denver backed up everything they did in the regular season in the playoffs. We're talking about a team that has length at every position. Even Jamal Murray, he's a big guard who can bully other point guards, can post up, and also is super fast and can just blow by these guys. So they played great basketball. Jokic had an all-time playoff run where he was playmaking at a super high level, and they were able to win it a championship and it's huge because the way ring culture is viewed right now in the nba is nasty because it goes so far away from basketball it comes down to do you have a championship ring or not and a lot of people call people stat nerds and they said well this true shooting stuff with Jokic or whatever doesn't guarantee that he'll be a championship player now that he's won a lot of these narratives die so for the nuggets proving the doubters wrong, playing hard, making it to the finals, sweeping the Lakers in the conference finals, which a lot of people did not have a sweep. A lot of people did not. Even me, I thought it would go six games. I had Denver favored in pretty much every series. Initially, I thought the Warriors would beat the Lakers. And if they got by the Lakers, I felt that they actually had the personnel to challenge Denver from the perimeter, which I feel like a lot of teams just simply didn't have that you know special point guard that can do like dame or steph like things to really stretch out their defense but ultimately Denver won and that's what matters you win and you maximize your window with nikola Jokic, and you win with him being your best player and even for the other players along the ride i mean bruce brown has always been a solid rotational player but coming in really made his name in the playoffs. Got paid the bag by Indiana for his play. Jamal Murray. People saying Jamal Murray only can do that in the bubble. And Jamal has his best playoff run ever. Damn the bubble. This is the best basketball Jamal has ever played in his life in the playoffs. Aaron Gordon. Great pickup. Great pickup that we talked about for a long time in terms of this defensive wing that can fit into what Denver wants to do and add versatility from the defensive end with his length and his strength alongside Jokic. Played great defense on multiple bigger guys, on, on, on Jimmy, on Kevin Durant. He had his moments all playoffs long. He was tremendous for them in every series. Michael Porter Jr., Still left some things to be desired at the end, but his defense was better. He had moments where he didn't quite understand exactly what he was doing, and sometimes he would get benched, but ultimately, he's still not fully healthy, and Denver still wins the title. So big shout-out to them. Honestly, I think that's a big thing that you have to highlight. But on the other side of the Denver Nuggets, you have the Miami Heat, a team that had one of the weirdest regular seasons and also one of the craziest playoffs combined probably ever i mean this is a team that was a seven seed 
for the majority of the regular season. They were a terrible shooting team. They could not really shoot to save their life. Guys were in and out, and they still made the play-in. And let's not have any revisionist history. As good of a playoff run as this was, let's really talk about the facts here. When Miami made the play-in and got dominated by the Atlanta Hawks, a lot of people were saying Miami was dead in the water and they were not going to make the playoffs because they lost to Atlanta that badly. But then they regroup. They're like three minutes away from potentially losing to the Bulls and not even being in the playoffs, but they win that, right? So now let's go to the first round because I really hate the recency bias and the revisionist history. I have receipts, people. Let's get right into this, right? So they go up against the Bucks. The narrative is that they're going to get swept. Me personally, I was on that side. I, I, I genuinely believed that the Bucks were going to be able to make quick work of them, primarily because I just didn't trust their half-court offense, and I thought the Bucks would be good. Giannis goes down game one. The Heat win game one. Instantly, I'm starting to think, okay, hang on. The Heat might have a real chance here. And then game two, game two, the Bucks put up 81 points in a half of basketball. They blow the heat out by like 30 plus points or whatever it was. And guess what the narrative then becomes? The narrative then becomes the Bucks are going to beat them without Giannis. I repeat, the Bucks are going to beat them without Giannis. It doesn't matter that they have Giannis. That does not matter. And what do the Heat do? Jimmy Butler comes out, dominates back-to-back -back games at home. They win those games, and they go up 3-1. And the context, he has a 56-point game where they're down in the game. He's talking shit all the way through. And then he pops up, has a phenomenal performance in the fourth quarter, and closes them out in a game where Giannis has a triple-double. So you would think at this point, okay, they're up 3-1. Miami is clearly favored to win a series, right? But then ESPN, the, the Giannis fans, the Buck fans, a lot of people then said the Bucks are coming back from down 3-1. People rolled off game five, saying the Bucks are at home. They're a championship pedigree team. There's no way to lose game five. And me, being a guy that watched the series, I said that, no, they're going to lose. And me saying a team up 3-1 is going to win game five, apparently that was a hot take because a lot of people did, did not agree with me. But then game five, what happens? Jimmy Butler takes the heart of the Milwaukee Bucks. The entire game, he's trashing Jimmy, uh, sorry, he's trashing Drew Holiday for the entire game. And it's funny because Drew Holiday is one of the best defenders in the league. And Jimmy is just so much of a maniac that he's thrashing him consistently. Giannis looks absolutely terrified in the fourth quarter. And the, and the Bucs as a whole collapsed. Their half-court offense fell apart. Drew Holiday was, was a terrorist shooting the ball. It wasn't great. Chris Middleton couldn't get by people, which is kind of funny because... For the entire season, I, I've been saying Chris Middleton 
look compromised. And then after that, after all of that, the referees are still giving Milwaukee every whistle known to man. And the Heat just find a way to win. They lose Tyler Hero, by the way, for the majority of this series. Didn't even think about him. The Heat find a way to win. Jimmy Butler has the insane tip back. And they go to overtime and they close them out and they win the series. And what happens after that? Oh, maybe the Bucks were not as good as we thought, guys. Maybe the Bucks were not this championship caliber team with Giannis, even though the narrative a couple games ago was they're going to come down 3-1 because they're this and they're that. Now you're reevaluating what you thought the team was instead of saying, hey, the Heat were better. And that's really just what it was. But anyway, the Heat do the unthinkable and beat the Bucks in five games. They then go to the Knicks series where Jimmy Butler sustains an injury. And a lot of people say on paper, the Knicks are the more talented team. Fair. The Heat beat them too. Even with Jimmy Butler being banged up from contributions from Duncan Robinson, Gabe Vincent, a lot of the role players for Miami showing up, including Caleb Barton, who was really good as well after the first round. Then we get to the conference finals. A lot of people say that the shenanigans for the Miami Heat are officially over. The Boston Celtics are the more talented team. The Heat do not have enough to stack up with the Boston Celtics. Jason Tatum is one of the best players in the NBA. Jason Tatum is better than Jimmy Butler. Jalen Brown was averaging 27 points per game as a number two option. I just don't see how the Heat went. Then the Heat go up 3-0. Jimmy Butler snatches Boston's soul in the first two games. And then for the rest of the series, he plays terribly. I said coming into the series, I actually lean Boston only because I thought the Jimmy Butler injury would be too much for the Heat to overcome. And I was partially right. It wound up going seven games and the Heat very well could have lost the series, but they still win. Game six, shout out to Derek White. That was a crazy game winner. But game seven, on the very first play, Tatum gets injured. And the funny part about this is Jalen Brown, top 15 player Jalen Brown, Supermax, $57 million annually, Jalen Brown, gets an opportunity to show why he can be the number one on some other team or or why he's one of the best players in the league or, or why he's this really good player that people kept telling me he was. By the way, he's still really good at basketball. Let's not get it twisted, but he is not as high as people say he is. He's not. He is not a top 15 player. And in that game where Tatum was compromised and essentially played decoy, Jalen Brown shot everything, missed everything, made terrible reads, had like seven turnovers, a very sloppy handle that got exposed badly and was having very bad turnovers. Like his decision-making has always been a flaw and that showed at the highest level in the most important game of the series for Boston. So then the Heat get by them and they go to the finals. And then Denver beats him in five. And this, this series really showed 
as good as the Heat were, the flaws of relying on players like Kyle Lowry, Gabe Vincent, and Max Struess to consistently give you production. Because while it was working for the playoffs as much as possible, when you go up against a team that has more length, more size, and a team that can beat you in transition, it's hard to get that much from those players. But let's also be honest. Jimmy Butler, after the first round, was not the same player. I attribute a good bit of that to the injury that he sustained, but also he was a limited offensive player. I mean, he couldn't really get by his defenders as much. And even when he did, he was extremely passive to where he wasn't taking open layups. He would kick out to threes. And the reason behind that, obviously, is Jimmy Butler was the only player on that team that consistently could take the ball from the three-point line, get to the paint, and create offense for other players. So I get it. I really do get it. But it just wasn't enough. And to be quite frank, Jokic and Jamal were the best players in that series. Bam, who I haven't really talked about at all. I'm sorry. But Bam was great all, all playoffs. I think this is probably his best playoffs. I think individually his best series is still against Boston in the bubble to me. But Bam Adebayo played spectacular in multiple series. And he was a big part of why they even got past the Bucks because of his defense on Giannis and how flexible he was for that entire series. So big shout out to Bam. But the Denver Nuggets were just a better team. But ultimately... What happened in the finals is a big part of why I am a huge supporter of Damian Lillard going to the Heat because Dame will floor raise that offense. And people speak about Dame being a negative on defense. He absolutely is. I agree with that. But Max Struess was a negative on defense. Gabe Vincent tried his heart out, but he's still six foot. He was still able to be hunted by Denver. So that doesn't really mean much. Adding Dame adds a different level to the pick and roll. It takes pressure off of Bam and Jimmy to have to do what they do. And these guys can be more efficient and more productive players in other aspects of the game. So to me, the finals should show you that for Miami for sure. But the last thing I want to talk about on this podcast has to be Zion Williamson and the New Orleans Pelicans. And it's bittersweet because the Pelicans were a team that I thought could make the playoffs this year. I'm pretty sure I had them as high as like a five or six seed this year. And the way they started their season, they absolutely showed why. Like they, they dominated the Nets. Ingram goes down early, which sucks, right? Ingram goes down early, but Zion is healthy. He's still playing, and he's dominating. Like, he looks like, like an all-NBA performer. And then Zion gets hurt, and we don't see Zion ever again. He played 29 games. But they were the number one seed with Zion playing with no Brandon Ingram. And then now it's like the question marks on... Can Zion be a franchise player? Can Zion be the guy you put faith in to take your team to the playoffs? These are legitimate questions to ask because his availability has been a concern 
for the majority of his career now. And people bring up the averages of the games he plays each season. At a certain point, there is a time where you question if you should trade him or not. And I think for the Pelicans, how good Zion has been, that's not an easy decision to make because when he's on the floor, he's he's literally putting up Shaq level numbers in the paint. His touch in the paint is crazy. They cannot keep him from getting to the paint when he wants to get to the paint in the regular season. And not being able to see what this team looks like in the playoffs or how Zion will respond as a playoff player is something that has to hurt Pelicans fans because you don't even know what this team can really be in the playoffs outside of the one year you made it. And I was without Zion or how Brandon Ingram and Zion can respond being the best players in the playoff series. So for me, the Pelicans are such an intriguing team because they have a tough situation being that their two best players are both injury prone guys. And Brandon Ingram is legitimately good. But he also has a contract extension coming up. And do you pay Ingram that money knowing you can't rely on Zion? Or do you trade Ingram for another player to maximize this Zion window if you think the Zion window might be shorter than people would hope? I don't know. I don't know what the Pelicans do. But I will say this. For Zion Williamson... This upcoming season, I do feel like is a make or break. And obviously, he's super young, right? So this take my age badly. But for me, at least in terms of giving him the benefit of the doubt and saying X, Y, X, Y, or Z happens, at a certain point, you being present on the basketball floor and being reliable for your team and being a guy that can make that team better to get into the playoffs, at a certain point, that matters a lot to me. So this season for Zion, I just hope he's able to be on the court because I have no question about who Zion is when he's actually on the basketball court. But yeah, uh, that's going to do it for this week's podcast. If you made it all the way to the end, I appreciate the support. I'm going to be doing two podcasts a week from this podcast moving forward because we have to cover 30 teams. And doing one team each week is just not going to cut it. I'm probably going to try to do two teams each podcast. We'll see how the new format for me works. I'm still in the process of scheduling out content to really be the best creator I could be. But if you made it this far, like up the episode, spam five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and other places where you get your podcast content. But I'm officially going to call it, man. I'll catch you guys the next episode of Gifted Hoops. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, Gifted X Hoops. And obviously on YouTube, I I really want to hit that thousand subscribers. We're very close to monetization on YouTube. So my hard work can actually receive at least a dollar. (laughs) That would be great. But appreciate all the support. I'll catch you guys in the next episode of Gifted Hoops later this week. Peace out, people.